0: When I think of the stereotypical prepper, I'm thinking of all these, like, MREs and little disgusting things no one ever wants to eat unless there's some cataclysm, basically. Yeah. But what you're saying is, like, no, like, try to just accumulate a lot of the things that you actually like to eat, and that will serve you in a in the event that something bad happens, but it will also serve you in the event that something bad doesn't happen. That, you that know, he
1: fun. has to go more than two months on a food supply- We've got really much bigger problems at that point. We're we're into like movie level stuff if we're there. So that's kind of where I recommend people try to do is try to get to where you could maybe you'd get bored, right, and maybe you get tired of eating the same thing. But try to get to where you could have a good sixty days, without know, leaving your home, and nobody could start. And and if you can get there, you'll be able to get through most things. Because I also teach like an order of preparedness to start thinking like the first disasters to prepare for are the ones that happen to only you. Losing a job, a loved one gets cancer, something like that. And then to think about things that are neighborhood-sized disasters, because they're also more likely to happen to you than something global. Um, And then think more of like a regional, then like a statewide, then like national, then like global. And do your prepping starting from the individual level.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard. etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle and I hope you'll take the time to listen to them as again these are hand-selected sponsors and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone with a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS, it's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res, three-inch touchscreen, it's got a camera for air gapping the wallet, uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility, and it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Leden. Leden lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L E D N.io today to sign up. Jack Spearco, welcome to the What is Money Show. Robert, thanks for having me on. This is a, a really big honor. Great to have you here, man. Uh, by way of quick introduction, you are the host of the Survival Podcast um i appeared on your show previously and i wanted to have you on to talk about your world a little bit um and you've been doing this podcast game for a really long time sounds like back when there were actual people were listening to podcasts on actual ipods so I'd i'd love to hear that story of how you how you got into podcasting so
1: in 2008 i was uh At the height of my success in uh, corporate America, I was a partner in a holding corporation. I had a a really good partner named Neil, and he was kind of guy that has access to the type of financial advisors that don't talk to people that are, you know, worth even a couple million bucks. They're really high end people, and so I knew this recess that recession at the time was coming and coming hard. We were restructuring the companies, and we had a company that did uh, web design and development and marketing. And I had a client that wanted a podcast as part of the blog. Ironically, this guy was a financial advisor and probably got hammered in that recession, but I, we got the job. I brought it to one of my developers and he's like, I know how to do all this stuff, but podcasting was so no, He's like, like, I don't really know how to do this part of it. So I actually started the show because I wanted to, and I also had to figure out how to do it. Uh-huh. So I started the show with, like, a $20 Plantronics headset and a little MP3 recorder, hmm. and uh, after about a week of doing it every day in the morning, I would do it in the morning and I'd listen to it in the afternoon going home, like, to critique it and try to make it better. I realized I didn't want to punch a hole in the wall anymore when I got home, like, it was venting, you know? And uh, so I set it a, a goal uh, to get a 1,000 listeners, you know, in my first six months of by the end of the year. We had to get like 2,500, you mentioned iPods. We actually gave away in a listener contest an iPod with be an ant, not a grasshopper on the back of it. So that's how long ago that was. 18 months into it, I went full-time. So that was the end of 2010. And I've been full-time as a podcaster since 2010 now.
0: Wow. So you're an official podcaster OG. I think that's a, I I think that qualifies. Yeah. Yeah, It's a long time. Now, were you just, you were just doing solo podcasts initially then you didn't have guests on?
1: Yeah. I mean, you kind of have to, if you're driving in a car, weaving in and out of traffic. So, um, I eventually, I wanted to get to where I could do guests and I could do listener calls and stuff like that. And so that, as soon as I got off the road, I started bringing guests in. And right now, I do like one guest show a week, some weeks, two other weeks. I still do standalone shows. Uh, My Monday shows are usually like listener feedback stuff. It's all things that people are asking from the audience. Tuesday, I usually do a Bitcoin-centered show. I'll have somebody like you on. Wednesday, it'll be somewhere in our world of preparedness and regenerative ag and permaculture. I'll have another guest. Thursday, I usually take a subject and I I teach it. Mm -hmm. So it's a true educational. Like, we'll take, like, I'm, doing a lot with biochar right now for uh, soil improvement. So it'll be something very academic like that. Friday, I have this group of uh, really amazing people I've built over the year, like a cadre of experts. And people submit uh, questions for them. So that show will basically be just me bridging together all the questions and their answers, and I think an anchor segment at the end of it. So it's it's a wide variety of stuff. And it's just, I think, like my advice to podcasters, you let your audience tell you what they want and then try to give it to them as long as what they're asking for makes sense. Mm-hmm. Huh. So the, the audience built it. The community around the show is what, what built it, not me.
0: Right, and so you've been been at this game, I guess, for 15 years now, sounds yep. like. And then how much has your audience grown? When You you said 2,500 in the first six months. Like, where are you at today? On the audio side, collectively through all the services, we'll get somewhere around
1: 200,000 downloads per episode uh, within, like, the first week after it's published. And then, you know, obviously it your downloads of older shows are pale in comparison to your newer ones. Yeah. All in, we have about a, a 200,000 strong community. Wow. Which is, you know, it's, you can, and I mean, honestly, like people, if there's anybody in your audience that wants to like do podcasting full time, the way you build it is what's important. I was making a full time living as a podcaster with 20,000 people. Uh-huh. That It's not that hard if you're building things the right way and you, Adapt your
0: revenue model to fit your community. Interesting. And then, so two hundred thousand people that are tuning in to learn about this uh, philosophy of modern survivalism—I think you call it. Yeah, yeah. When
1: I when I started this, I wanted something I could like hang my hat on and and anchor everything off. And so, I went into Google and I started taking these different phrases and putting quotes around them so they were exact matches. And when I got to modern survivalism. Nothing came up except like a sentence that ended in modern and the next one started in survival. was like, I
0: can,
1: I can actually create something now. Huh. And I developed 12 tenants that everything we do is based on. And it's not like we sit, it's not like a Dave Ramsey show where we just talk about those 12 tenants every day, right? But yeah. everything comes off of those. And the first one, and I think it's what makes what we do really unique, is that everything that you do to prepare for disasters and emergencies should make your life better even if nothing goes wrong. Because then you're in a very pragmatic place, you're just making better decisions that are more non-brittle than the average person, which, sad to say, isn't that hard to do. Mm.
0: Can you give me some examples? So I want to walk through these 12 tenets, because there's a lot of overlap here, I think, with the notion of self-sovereignty that is often discussed in the Bitcoin community. And um, I'm very interested in kind of bridging the gap between these two worlds, because The Bitcoiner view in general is that Bitcoin is here to stay, Um, it's going to continue to absorb purchasing power from inferior monies, therefore the state will shrink as an organizational model, so the big question mark I think for people that are down the Bitcoin rabbit hole is what happens next, like what do we do now? And it seems to me like this domain of modern survivalism or self-sovereignty is the key space to be exploring when you look beyond the success of Bitcoin into the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, we also have kind of four pillars, and the four mm-hmm. pillars are self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. Uh, so that that that's that's the core ethos of the community. So, yeah, you could start kind of with, People use two word or phrases very interchangeably, and to me, they're not. Self-reliance and Uh self-sufficiency. So self-reliance, to me, is measured in time. Uh So if I have a generator and enough gasoline to run all my electricity for two weeks, then I have two weeks of self-reliance for power. Self-sufficiency is measured in percentages. Hmm. So if I have an off grid system, for instance, of solar panels that provide me fifty percent of the energy I use on a regular basis, I'm fifty percent self sufficient because it's ongoing. Hmm. So there's a lot to having sovereignty in that, and and I mean what you're hitting on is if government shrinks, that a lot of things we remind of, uh, rely on government for, even if we don't like the, like government, we do have to do for ourselves. Sure, and that's where you know that's where sovereignty steps in. Where okay. If if you're not going to have let's say as large a police force, you're going to have to provide some of your own security, right? If you're not if, if we're not going to have government subsidized agriculture, food's going to be more expensive, and we need to think better about how we're going to acquire our food. Right. If the food itself is polluted and garbage, which most of it is, I'm pretty sure you're aware of that. Knowing your lifestyle, that is doing something about that. That we we might need to do that anyway, just so that we are eating high quality, nutritious food. It's not poison because most of what people are eating today is industrial-level waste and poison uh, and and no nutrient density in the food whatsoever. So all of that aligns with the concept of if the state decreases or if it goes the other way, if the state like explodes in a, a last rage of an attempt to control things, which I think is very possible as well, you need to be able to look out for yourself. Because we're moving into a place, a lot of places it feels like, Law enforcement could do nothing for you, but they can do something to you. And you're yeah. you're really into tyranny at that point.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Can't do a lot for you, but can do something to you. So this first tenant, you say everything you do should improve your position in life, even if nothing ever goes wrong. So this is not... I think a lot of people have this concept or notion of pre- you know preppers, preparedness as people building shelters and buying canned food and you know waiting for the bomb to drop something like that but what you're saying is something different right you're just saying improve your lifestyle uh, across these various dimensions in a way that would also be resilient to some catastrophic type event um so like can you give me some like I guess, concrete examples of this? Like, what what are ways in which you can just improve your position in life that's, uh, even if nothing goes wrong, like, you will still be glad that you did it? And look at something like eliminating consumer-level
1: debt. The person that does that and then has more capital to spend building their life and investing and saving for retirement or investing in a business is clearly better off than the person that's saddled with $100,000 worth of consumer-level debt. Mm. I'm not completely anti-debt. I think I'm not going to buy a house for cash. I can do more with the house than the cost of servicing the mortgage, even with the race we have. But consumer-level debt is toxic. It's actually Mm. one of the other credits, right? But you're still better off if you do that. Mm. If you have uh, some level of alternative energy, some Mm -hmm. backup power or something like that, eventually, especially the way systems are getting to now, if you're smart about how you install it, where you source your materials, it cuts your electric bill. So now you're back to having more money. Mm. But when the power goes off, you're also better off. Whether it goes off for a week, a day, a month, you're better off having some form of backup power than not. Yet you're still better off having that backup power in the regular world. You look at something like many preppers get into permaculture, gardening, things like that how many people out there garden that have no concern about preparedness whatsoever because of the benefits of growing your own food. So all right. these things, and as we go through the rest of them, you can keep always thinking back to that anchor tenant. Number one, how this is actually a good way to live. Even if we don't have some sort of massive global disaster, like a, you know, pandemic or, or whatever, yeah. that actually does disrupt the entire, uh, a global chain.
0: Yeah. So that, um, that's a good one on energy, right? To just produce some of your own energy gives you some resilience by being independent of the grid. But at the same time, even if you don't need to be independent of the grid, it could just reduce your cost, your energy cost footprint. Right. Um, that's interesting. And then what... So uh, that rolls into tenants two and three, which are related to eliminating debt and producing your own food. So like, how extensive... Do you suggest people get into that? I mean, I guess the debt thing, as you said, it it depends on the type of debt, right? Consumer debt, <laughs> bad, long term, fixed rate. Um, debt on an appreciating asset makes sense, or right? I mean, you're
1: you're there's always the possibility of a massive real estate crash if you're a real estate investor. But if you're an investor in anything, there's always that potential well, for loss, right? For so yeah. the average person owning a piece of property probably makes a lot of sense, and doing with debt. It's probably the way most people will do it.
0: Yeah, Uh, and as as bad as fiat currency is, and we outline that very heavily and clearly, hopefully, on this show, um, it's still, there's an incentive to borrow in a fiat currency paradigm because dollars are depreciating every year, so it makes sense to borrow strong dollars and pay back weakening dollars over time. But um, you have to be very intelligent with that. You definitely don't want to borrow to fund present consumption. Borrowing eighty thousand dollars to
1: buy a car, right? right. And, and there's people that if they do it, in, I don't care. The person mm-hmm. that's worth a hundred million dollars, they just want to drive a, a two hundred thousand dollar. But I don't care what they do. Oh. But the average American today, that is a middle income person, is out, you know, spending 80000 dollars on a vehicle on a on a five to seven year car loan on a depreciating asset. I, I bought my first house for eighty four thousand dollars you know, and and now you got people buying SUVs for eighty thousand dollars. that mm-hmm. That type of debt is very damaging to the average person's total life because yeah. I teach that you don't measure debt in dollars. you measure it in time. How long are you a slave to that debt? Mm-hmm. And when you start looking at it that way and you start realizing what the average person earns and and how much of their life goes to paying for a car, or paying credit card bills, or paying student loans, because people take student loans like like they're never going to have to pay them back or something. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you want to be an engineer, and you go to a good engineering school, and you have a pretty high student loan debt, it probably still works. But most people today, the, the biggest debt they're carrying, if they're not homeowners yet, is student loan debt, and most of their degrees are, frankly, they're worthless. They're absolutely worthless. So, that all has to be cleaned up in your life because if you don't do it it's like having cancer and not worrying about it It only gets worse mm. and it's it's kind of interesting that a person that has a cancer that hasn't been diagnosed can look really healthy but it's metastasizing through their body and mm. one day it all hits them dad works the same way you'll see a person a person that lives a little bit more meager existence may look like they're not as financially healthy as their neighbor who's got a golf club membership and drives an $80,000 car, and his wife has a $70,000 car, and this guy looks like he's doing really great, but by the time they're in their 40s, they're getting divorced, they hate each other. Mm-hmm. Most of that comes from monetary problems. So we get rid of that. That's kind of like why it's number two. Mm-hmm. Moving into food, it's, you know, preppers always want to talk about guns, and God guns, uh, and we talk about a means of defense as well. But I've only been in a few fights in my whole life. And I actually used to throw people out of a nightclub for a while as a (laughs) site. Right. And I've only ever been in a few fights in my life. I was shot at one time when I was in the army, didn't care for it. But I've had to eat pretty much every day of my life. Mm -hmm. So when we move into food production, that's just, you know, there's a reason people say I have to keep a roof over the head, stay out of debt, and put food on the table, produce some of your own food. But then the reason people say that like a cliche is because it's true. It's what fuels a home. It's what keeps, you know, what you worry about most if you're a father is whether or not your kid's going to eat tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like when your kid's not going to eat tomorrow, you'll go out and do things that you would, as a moral person, you would never do mm-hmm. when it comes to feeding your children. So those those two are linked in a significant way.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and go, I'm going, looking at tenant four now. Uh, right. You know, this is also a point we make repeatedly on the show. Taxation is theft. Can never be anything but theft so long as it's not consensual. If you don't have the right to say no or turn down a proposal, right? Or uh, a counterparty to a transaction. If you can't say no to them and walk away, if they can force you to engage in the transaction, then it's theft. So I think tenant four, you are advocating for tax optimization, it looks like.
1: Yeah, that's the first step, right? So I've always said it this way. The tax code is this huge, giant pile. It looks like two super phone books from the 1980s, from like New York City or something. It's massive. But the thing about it is the people that wrote it, they wrote it for themselves. They didn't write it for you. Only about 5% of it is what you have to do. The other 95% of it is how you get out of doing it. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, I really push entrepreneurship because it opens up a tremendous amount of ways to pay less taxes and move things from the expense in your life column to expense in your business column. Now, I'm not talking about illegal things here. I'm talking about running the code and you having a good CPA. And if your concerns a little mm-hmm. bit larger, also having a tax attorney and making sure that you've optimized your life to pay them as little as you legally can straight out. Uh-huh. Okay. Right, and that's you know that's the same thing with alternative energy. It's the first thing you do. Make sure your house is insulated.
0: Optimize the efficiency first, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally makes sense. R- reduce the leaks in the ship. Uh, and we, I have a master's degree in taxation. Funny enough as that sounds, and <laughs> one of the f- main things you learn is the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance. right? Tax evasion is you are skirting the law, breaking the law, whatever it is. Tax avoidance is the legal avoidance of taxation. So you're exploiting these loopholes, that 95% of the tax code that you mentioned. Um, And that, yeah, you should definitely do that if you don't like to be stolen from. Um, And at five, looks like you are advocating for stored food storage. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I do think it makes sense to have a deep pantry and to have enough food that your family doesn't have to worry if something goes wrong and you can't get out to go buy food or there's some sort of supply chain disruption like many of us experienced. But I also don't believe that it makes sense to go out and buy like a whole bunch of crap in five-gallon buckets that's just repackaged noodles and beans from, you know, I won't name any names, but it probably brings some to mind if people know the industry at all. ewe store, store where eat. So I try to teach people to make your home like a grocery store or a convenience store in itself. So. We teach things like copy canning if you do use canned food it'd be a a, a perfect example of you go to the store you were going to buy one can this week buy two you know and then the next week buy two and do that until you stack that back until you have like about as much as you use in a month or two and then do it with another item and then do it with another item and then do it with another item and keep doing that until you build that level of inventory just like a store does and run it just like a store new stuff goes in the back old stuff's at the front so that you're you know you're optimizing your rotation Because what happens, and I've I've been to people's homes, you know, from the audience, and, you know, you get in a closet and they have all this food piled in there, most of it's way out of date and what have you, and they're like, they almost apologetically, they're like, I did this before I started listening to you or whatever. It doesn't make sense to store food that you're only going to eat if the world ends. Right? I mean, I've to to drive this point home, I saw a thing on a TV show, was it a Pawn Stars? Dude was selling a can of saltine crackers from the 60s from the bomb shelters, And I'm like, are those things still around? I found one on eBay, so I bought one for like 30 bucks. So I've got a 1966 can of saltine crackers, right? That that mindset of like, we're just going to put this down in a hole, and if the nuclear bombs go off, we're going to eat our crackers. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But keeping that food inventory, and I also believe in keeping, you know, I call it food on the hoof. So I run a little farm. I've got ducks. I've got chickens. I've got geese. They don't require any energy to store them. They produce eggs, but if I need to eat one, they're right there and and they're available. But, you know, I took a look at, well, what's the ROI on uh, stored food? 2020, the ROI was 3.5% across the year. 2021, 11.8%, and 2022, 11.4%. Now, those are not not three years of bad returns, right? So you're going to eat this food anyway, so why not... Capitalize on buying it before it goes up. Also, capitalize on things like opportunity buys. So, when something goes on sale, you buy more of it, and then you use that to build, you know, your, your stock calls up. And there's some inter, you know, other parts of this interlock with it because, like you, I eat a lot of meat, so I have like three chest freezers, right? So I have plenty of fuel and generator capacity to make sure I don't lose that in a long term down scenario you know and it's really like a holistic way to do things uh i do recommend people consider at least some of the specialized long-term storage foods but more as like an adjunctive thing and and still to use them from time to time we even have people in the audience now they're doing their own freeze drying um i'm in in some discussions with a company called harvest right we might bring them on as a sponsor soon uh because that's as you start to produce food you start to realize you can produce a lot more than you can use
0: right away storing things you like to eat right it's again it's common sense but when you think about when I think of the stereotypical prepper I'm thinking of all these like MREs and little disgusting things no one ever wants to eat unless there's some cataclysm basically what you're saying is like no like try to just accumulate a lot of the things that you actually like to eat and that will serve you in a in the event that something bad happens but it will also serve you in the event that something bad doesn't happen that, you, that, you know,
1: if he has to go more than two months on a food supply, we've got really much bigger problems at that point. We're we're into, like, movie-level stuff if we're there. So that's kind of what I recommend people try to do is try to get to where you could. Maybe you'd get bored, right, and maybe you'd get tired of eating the same thing. But try to get to where you could have a good 60 days, you leaving your home, and nobody could starve. And, and if you can get there, you'll be able to get through most things. Because I also teach like an order of preparedness to start thinking like the first disasters to prepare for are the ones that happen to only you. losing a job, a loved one gets cancer something like that. And then to think about things that are neighborhood sized disasters, because they're also more likely to happen to you than something global. Um, and then think more of like a regional than like a statewide then like national than like global and do your prepping starting from the individual level. Right, like there, there is a lot of fear out there right now, and I understand where it comes from. I, I had a history professor on yesterday, and we talked about the crumbling empires uh, of of the past and the similarity to the United States, and what does the crumbling of the U.S. empire look like? And it's 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 not a pretty thing to consider, but in the end, it probably also won't look like the fear porn that's put out there, even if we go that far. But you still have to get. Prepared to deal with the things that would happen to you first, and so going in that logical progression keeps people from making really bad, stupid decisions, like running out and buying sixty thousand dollars worth of MREs. Which I know a person who did it, right? I'm like she, she could get your money back, man. I I lived on MREs for six months in Honduras when I was nineteen years old. Really, did not <laughs> did not care for it. That was nineteen ninety one. Can you yeah. tell me about that? Was that uh? Like why? What, what what happened? So I was stationed in Panama, and I did the dumbest thing you could ever do in your military. You volunteer for something. So I volunteered as part of an attachment to go into the mountains of Honduras for six months, and we were there to build roads and schools as part of a, a very much larger operation called Fortis Caminas at the time, which is strong roads. And uh, so we built this road in the middle of the Aguad River Valley up in the mountains. It was about 12 miles. And there was a National Guard uh, camp on one end and a regular army, which is where we were on the other end. And we basically connected those two because there were already existing roads up to there. And that was a pretty interesting project. And, you know, talk about abject poverty, uh, the people that live there. Uh, But because of the remote nature of it, we ate regular breakfast and regular dinner. But we ate MREs for lunch every day for that whole 180-day deployment. And there were twelve of them at the time. There you could there was twelve different ones. Two of them were unedible. So you got ten things that you're gonna eat, you know, for for that long a period of time. And that like today they have all the heaters and stuff. We didn't have that. Then we would just take the meat on and throw it up on the roof of the tent in the morning. And by by lunchtime, it would literally be simmering from the, the heat off the canvas. It was uh Yeah. <sighs> My God. It was a good thing to have done, but it's not something I'd want to do again now when I'm at fifty wow. years old.
0: <laughs> wow so yeah you you had a taste of that modern survivalism
1: yeah back there, right wow in a gp medium gp medium tent with seven other dudes for six months that that gets old so oh they, my God. goodness pissing in a tube like so we had like for bats and we had these four inch pvc pods shoved in the ground with lime around them and they wow. ended up having to put wire over the tops of them because the freaking bees would go in there so you go to and then the bees come out and you know they're the Africanized angry bees. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's the nice still, still some good memories from it too, but it was uh it definitely definitely made me not want to re enlist. I'm like, it could end up somewhere like this again.
0: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Incredible. Um okay. The looking back at the tendency or tenant number six. Looks like you you're basically saying prepare for the threats that you are actually most likely to face as an individual right yeah i I guess this is yeah this is an echo of basically what you just said okay so going to tenant seven all right this one's interesting so alternative energy uh this is a difficult one right like how do we how can we properly phase into energy independence um you know, I think i'm I'm reflecting on the Kissinger quote, right? Like if you control food, money, and energy, you control the world kind of thing. So as a modern, I would assume in modern survivalism, you'd want to be food, money, and energy independent as much as possible. As much as possible. But energy is tricky because our lifestyles consume an incredible amount of it, and most of us are attached to a centralized grid of some kind. So how do you recommend people like phase into uh, energy independence? So the first step is to think about efficiency. What,
1: what are, we're all, you know, the, the boring stuff. We're, you know, Do you have a weather seal around your doors? What's your insulation capacity, et cetera? Because that's a big part of why we spend so much on energy because energy, as much as people hate paying electric bills, when you think about what we get by just flipping a switch, it's actually pretty cheap. Right. Ener- energy is incredibly inexpensive in our world. That's why so many of our modern conveniences are even possible. When you think about, you know, how much energy would it take to move an 18-wheeler up a 6% grade for two miles? And then we can do that with, you know, a-, a cup of diesel fuel. And then that cup of diesel fuel, we complain about the price, but that cup of diesel fuel is like 50 cents. And if we had to do that with human human power, how much more expensive would that one little thing be? So we get the efficiency worked out first, and I like people to learn how to do things. So if they want to go full on solar, they can do a lot of the work themselves because there's a huge portion of the cost is actually in the labor. So let's do everything small scale first, from basic learning projects. So we, you know, build a simple backup uh, a battery backup system. You know, that that can be uh, a, a, like a charger you buy at Walmart and for um, Marine batteries linked together, and I will try to explain how to do that, because somebody does it wrong, they're going to mess things up. The series in parallel, get that right. And an inverter, and then you have a little bit of backup power. A hell of a lot more than the UPS that's backing up my power for my computer with four, uh, four of those batteries. Well, now you've got a battery backup, so now you can run something if the power goes out for a time. Well, now let's get a small generator. Well, now we can recharge the batteries. Right, So now I can have some overnight power and be quiet so I'm not advertising to everybody in the middle of, let's say, a storm's come through and you got looters and I'm advertising here we are. So now the, the generator's running in the daytime, the battery's running at night like a submarine, silent indeed. And so now we have that. Well, now we can add small-scale solar to that. Now we can go out and get a few hundred watts of solar panels, we can get a charge controller, we can hook that up to our battery bank, so the battery bank now begins to actually run off solar. Well, now I've got a mini solar system. I've got you know something that a nefarious company might call a solar generator. There's no such thing as a solar generator. Generators are power on demand. You're talking about batteries and solar panels and a charge controller. So now you have that. Well, what you've just done is taught yourself everything you need to know to build an off-grid solar system. You really now could do everything yourself if you wanted to. You might not choose to, but all you've made a scale model and all you're doing, and you might want a little help from an electrician so you don't burn you know, burn your, your your skin off your hands or whatever, kill yourself. But it's the same process to do that. And then you can look at whether you want to be grid-tied, backup battery, or, or what have you. The problem that most people have when they, they get with these companies, guys come around and say they're going to put you up on solar power, and you think, oh, this will be great. Now I'll have power if the grid goes down. No, because the most expensive thing you're going to buy is the batteries not the panels. So most of these are straight grid-tied systems, meaning they cut your bill, and if they're producing more than you're using, you can sell it back to the grid in most states anyway. But if the grid's down, you're not running because you have no reserve. So then there's also grid tied with battery backup. That means we have grid power, we have battery backup. Now if the grid goes down, there's a transfer switch that should be installed to do automatically when it says there's no power here. Because now I'm producing power. If I'm producing power and I'm still tied to that grid. And there's a lineman out there working. He can get killed. Because he thinks the power is off. And I'm pushing power onto the grid. So you have that transfer switch. And now you can run you know as much production and storage capacity as you have. So you you transition to that. You don't go straight to it. And then what's your climate like? What's going to be the best decision for you? What's the ROI on time? We have to think about that. You know, building a, a solar heating of some way, is often a better play for people than just straight photovoltaics for electricity. So it's very easy to even like just heat one room in your house during the daytime if you live in a sunny climate, even when it's very cold out. It's I don't want to get into exact specifications, but it's basically just a box with glass and and black paint on the inside and some aluminum piping or repurposed aluminum cans and a tube, and you can heat a room by just setting that in the sun and plugging that into a window. Or you can go to a level of, you know, solar hot water where you have it professionally installed or you buy professional equipment for it and just move into it slowly and consider going larger across time rather than trying to go from I'm on grid, now I'm off grid. Because for most people, the economics of that don't work. It's it's not that it wouldn't be a great thing if you're if you're wealthy, by all means, if you're just not going to hurt your your long term balance to, to just go full on off grid, go ahead and do it. But in most instances, I don't think it makes sense. Yeah, interesting. There's another way to approach it, too, that's really important to look at for people who are looking for land. Mm. So, you know, they'll say it's a 5-year, 10-year, 15-year payback on a lot of this stuff based on the current cost of electricity and projected price raises and stuff. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be almost immediate as well. So there's a lot of land out there that people write off and say, well, I'm not going to buy that land because it doesn't have power to it and it would be prohibitively expensive to do that. So that land sells for a lot less. So if you can go in and put in $30,000 of solar equipment, and then as part of the build of your house, onto a piece of land that you bought for $30,000 less because it doesn't have power, often it would be even a, a more significant delta, then that system paid for itself. It paid hmm. for itself the day you put it in, because it was less expensive than bringing grid power in. And there's a lot of cherry picking opportunities like that with land sales out there because nobody wants to go through the, the, the 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 trouble to do that. You're just going to find yourself generally living more remotely, and that's that's yeah. another personal choice thing. I like urban rural fringe. Like, I live in the middle of nowhere is what it looks like. I could do anything I want. I don't even have building codes. I could be in downtown Fort Worth in 25 minutes.
0: i mean right. That's, right. that's kind of best of both worlds if you can skin it. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Especially with I had a conversation yesterday with a guy that put me on to this. Uh, it's called Swanson's Law. It's almost like the Moore's Law for solar technology. And apparently, the the efficiency of solar technology has been doubling every 22 months for some period of time. And so, buying land like that, you know, not only could that investment, I guess you could get the land at a discount, but assuming that solar technology continues to progress, um, that maybe even a bigger boon to that to investing in land of that sort over time yep yeah um
1: they're getting more. less expensive i think we're going to reach the the potential of those types of gains not going up that rapidly anymore because what they're building now is so much more efficient the the place to eke out more now is in the battery world and that's mm. you know if you if you look at elon musk and tesla it's not a car company Mm-hmm. It's a technology company, and its primary technology is batteries. Right. That's what. That's what te- the Tesla car is to the Tesla battery operation. What the hamburger is to real estate for McDonald's. That's
0: that's how uh, that what Got it. very very interesting perspective on that. So that was tenant eight too, right? Is just owning land, just owning land outright that makes you. Obviously, land that you can def- defend, protect, serves your needs and purposes, etc. The way I described is it, going from home
1: to homestead. Many, many years ago, I read like most people that ever get into like thinking differently about money. Rich dad, poor dad, and he talked about how most people's homes were actually put in the asset column. It's really a liability, and my first thought was it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. And so I grew up in small town coal region of Pennsylvania. 1970s and 80s Uh, my family was quite poor we did a lot of the stuff that I do now because we needed to right so we we grew a garden because we needed more food we went hunting not just because it was fun but because it was a significant part of what we ate every Mm -hmm. year and our homestead is what enabled everything that we did it's what tied us to our community uh, it's what enabled us to have great relationships with some of the older families, where we would share our garden produce with them, and there was a, a reciproc, you know, a true community, a reciprocity that mm-hmm. came with that. And that home had been in the family since like 1898 or something like hmm. that, is when my great grandfather gave it to uh, my grandfather uh, to take over eventually, and uh, it's. To me, that is how we should look at our, our our property, is what can it do for me? Instead, what people have are basically four walls and a roof that they pay an awful lot of money to be in very infrequently. They spend most of their time away from home, and their homes don't produce anything. So owning land is true wealth if you make it produce for you. Uh, and in today's day and age, like starting businesses is so easy to do today. Uh, to me, everybody that has any inclination for it anyway should be doing something entrepreneurial with their mm. property. And the, the things we can do today are, the technology that we can use didn't exist when I started doing this, let alone when I was a kid. What I mean by that is, you get a property its 10 acres, you put a nice pond on it, you put some nice amenities on it, you get to live there, that's great. You throw in three or four tiny houses. You can rent those tiny houses for more than people are renting Full-size houses, because people want the novelty of, of mm-hmm. one. So now you're making that land produce revenue, right? And you have nice pictures to put on Vibro or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that mindset has to go with land ownership. Mm-hmm. I do get kind of cross with a lot of the younger people, and I think it's just an excuse for why they, they, they don't want to buy a house. It's because they can't. Where they say, you know, you'll never own your, your land because you have to pay property tax on mm-hmm. it. Well if you're renting, you're paying my property taxes oh, I'm your landlord right so if you feel better about paying your tax right. broody that that's fine you know but I think that it should be a goal uh, of every reasonable adult to become some level of real estate holder whether it's just personal property or investment property.
0: Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, And yeah, the property tax is a pass through. No question about that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be renting you the property in the first place. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now, let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock.
1: Insurance. You got to have some insurance you got to, that's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit.
0: And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? (laughs) So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach, uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's Industry Day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, and many others. And last year we did a 10 million SATs giveaway for this event and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million SATs, go to b.tc conference 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Element. Element is a delicious electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. Element contains the ideal electrolyte ratio. It's got 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element has no junk. It's got no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS at all. Element is perfectly suited for people that are on a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. And as someone that eats a very heavy meat diet and does a lot of intermittent fasting, I simply love this stuff. So go to drinkelement.com/breedlove, that's d r i n k l m n t.com/breedlove and make sure to get a free sample pack with your first purchase. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now when I talk about Bitcoin being theft proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Okay, Tenant 9, this one's rather practical, right? Just standard preparations like insurance, emergency cash funds, long-term investments. Um, how do you explain the details surrounding Tenant 9? So I made sure that was part of the whole thing,
1: primarily for the huge segment of the prepper community that basically foregoes all that because the world's going to end, the zombies are going to come or whatever. So screw it. I'm not worried about any of that stuff. And, you know, the guy says he's prepared and he's got a bunch of guns and bullets. He's also got a, two young kids and a wife and he doesn't have insurance on his life. And, you know, I'm young and healthy. Well, you can get hit by a gravel truck tomorrow, dude, and you're dead and your family has nothing. You're not prepared. Mm-hmm. So start with making sure that if something goes wrong catastrophically in your life, that the people that depend on you are going to be looked after. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that's... And, and, you know... A lot of people in the prepper industry don't see any advantage into long-term savings, especially like in, uh, uh you, you know, investing in 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 stocks or commodities or things like that. I think there's a lot of upside there. I definitely don't believe that you're well diversified because you have five different mutual funds and all your money is in an IRA. I don't think that is well diversified. Mm-hmm. You probably should have some piece like that, right? You should have some form of a long-term investment strategy. You should, again, working the tax code, I I love tax-deferred or tax-exempt investment opportunities as well. So that's that's part of that. Um, I definitely think people should have some cash, you know, somewhere that they can get to that's also secure. So like a Firebox or a floor safe or something like that, so that if we have some sort of interruption to the ability to use your credit cards or whatever, you have the ability to pay reasonable expenses for a month, maybe. You know, at least the things you would need to acquire. Because while that problem's going on, you cannot pay the electric bill. Power's probably off anyway. Right? Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, you are going to need to make sure that you can see the things. Or maybe you're going to need help. Maybe you're going to need somebody to clear a driveway for you because you were injured during whatever storm event took place. Being able to pay for it. That all matters a great deal. So my big thing is just all the stuff that comes with being a responsible-ass grown man, right? Don't forego that because you're a prepper. And it's... Uh. It's actually shocking how many people do because what happens, they get in that fear mode and all they're worried about is beans, bullets, and band-aids. And that is such (laughs) a
0: small piece of the whole, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot more to it than beans, bullets, and band-aids for sure. Yeah. Um, And this rolls directly into 10 to 10, which is also very practical. Uh, You know, I always like to cite this quotation by Musashi this old warrior philosopher guy, and he has a, a number of wise things that he said, but one that really stuck with me at a young age was one of his strategic principles for living. And he always said that the way is in training. Mm. and That's something I try to live by. Like I'm always, every day, every action, I'm trying to get better at something all the time and that just seems to be that ladder you need to be actively climbing in life to to do well right to live well and what you have here that for tenant number 10 is to have a means of defense acquire knowledge and and training and use it effectively so what this is probably something that's a little bit more traditionally associated with preparedness um how do you how do you recommend people actually embrace this tenant.
1: So, I think it makes a lot of sense straight out of the gate to go take a good uh firearms safety course. That's your your first thing is safety. Um, I, you know, I I it's, I've had to kind of back my brain around the fact that not everybody grew up with a gun cabinet that sat right in the living room and when they were 6 years old we're getting getting to clean dad's deer rifle and all yeah. and, and realize that there's a lot of people that they get their hands on guns and they have no idea how to be safe. They didn't have a grandfather ready to smack them in the ear the first time they picked up a BB gun if they did something wrong. <laughs> so get that safety training and then take some level of like a level 1 tactical handgun course. Because the you know all this force on force engagement stuff and it's all fun and I like to do it. We even do force-on-force force engagement with like uh, uh, down capacity uh, professional training airsoft rifles. So mm-hmm. you know you're shooting ARs at each other, but you can't fire three thousand rounds out of a electric gun. You have a thirty round mag, and it's a gas blowback, and it works. Like it's all fun, but it's not. It's not highly likely of how you'll ever need a firearm to defend yourself. If you ever need a firearm to defend yourself, you're probably going to rely on a handgun, mm-hmm. right? So understand that and learn how to safely use it and la- learn how to use it when things go wrong. Learn how to clear malfunctions and things like that. And so then also have, as part of a means of defense, it's not just a gun, right? It's it's procedures and protocols is, is what yeah. you really need. So I I carry, so I almost always have a gun on me but I'm not walking around when I'm doing my gardening with an AR on my back. Uh (laughs) But if shit was going really wrong, I might. Uh Right? we're having riots and what have you, then I might. So a procedure is the thing that you do and how you do it. A protocol is using the procedures in a specific way due to the situation. So like a level zero protocol is the way you live your life every day. Things are a little bit more heightened. You move to a different level. And then, Honestly, you know, uh, you know, if somebody comes to your home, you, you have to deal with that. But mm-hmm. most of the things that happen to people that are bad, where they end up shot, stabbed, beaten, arrested, whatever it is, if they follow one rule, it would never happen, and that is don't go to stupid places and do stupid things with stupid people.
0: <laughs> if you don't
1: do that, 90% of what you worry about will never happen. Uh, I definitely recommend if your state allows uh, concealed carry, you do whatever you need to do to be able to carry. Yeah. I recommend if you're a married couple and the spouse is open to it, that both spouses carry. I've talked to people to say, you know, a woman will say something like, well, I don't worry my my husband's got my back. And, well, who has his? Right. Right. If one yeah. of these shootings go down in a store or something like that, the more people who are armed and know what they're doing, the quicker that threat can be neutralized. Right? Yeah. Um, so get professional training. And then you know how far you want to take armament. That's up to you. Mm-hmm. I kind of recommend 22 rifle. It's very very versatile. Good for training. A shotgun, a centerfire rifle, and a personal defense handgun of some sort. Uh, but the train and then like if once you have that and you have a little bit of training before you buy another gun, go get more training. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. You know, and then what are you going to train for? Like I like to hunt, so I I shoot sporting clays a lot. Mm-hmm. Birds don't shoot back, but they taste good. so so training is not just about tactical either because the gun for me growing up was not just if somebody ever came to hurt us we had a way to protect ourselves it was a significant part of you know the meat that we ate every year Mm -hmm. in fact where i went to school i think it's still the case up there that they closed school on the first day of deer season Hmm. because if they didn't nobody would be there because the boys are out hunting even if the girls didn't they're sleeping in the truck. Back then, we got one deer for a license. Mm. So you'd have little girl sleeping in the back of the truck. She took her hunter safety course. Daddy, brother, uncle shoots a deer. Come on, honey, you got a deer. Take her out, put her tag on it. because that was one more deer <laughs> right. in the deep freezer that year. I also believe in carrying non-lethal defense because okay. now I have options. So a good pepper spray is a perfect example of this. And realize your your threat might not always be a human. I had a neighbor who had a real asshole dog, a pit mix, real problematic animal, and I still didn't want to kill his dog. We were walking mm-hmm. down the road, and his dog came very, very aggressive at us, and you know I gave it a little tiny shot of pepper spray and it left. Mm-hmm. It was much. You know, dude, you need to control your dog. I had to pepper spray your dog, then to go, dude, here's your dog. So right. have, that was a dog. It could be a human. Having an option for non lethal, I think, is a good thing as well. Anyway, I'm sorry.
0: No, that's a great, great point. Thank you for interjecting that one. Um, yeah, we always prefer to deal with threats non-lethally, right? It's yeah, yeah. Uh, always an, an easier way. Okay, number 11. Yeah, you're. I, I think advocating here for documenting all of this, right? Actually documenting the protocol in a way that is shareable with the family, accessible to the family, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts here?
1: I did a show on this really early on. It was like in the 100s of episodes, and I did like episode 3245 today. So that's how far back that. Wow! And a master sergeant from a Marine Corps reached out to me and said, it might be the most important thing you ever did or will do." And he said, "Because you 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 covered it." And if you, anybody that wants that, can go to my site, the survivalpodcast.com and just type in "documentation package" in the uh, the the search bar, and the whole show will come up on how to do this. But what I what I'm advocating is putting together a ringed binder. You just print everything out and put in it that has all the information that you would need if you were displaced and how you would get the hell out of where you are if you had to go. So I believe in the rule of threes, three destinations, three routes per destination, and three rally points along each route. And that way there's one of these binders in every vehicle that you own and an extra one at the house. Hmm. And so now imagine there's some sort of scenario that requires evacuation. Your 17-year-old daughter's in high school. She's got a car. High school's that way. You need to go that way. You going to get her doesn't make sense. But she's also freaked out. Right. Well, if you say, honey, turn to page 13, look at that, take that route, and meet daddy at, you know, uh, rally point B. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, not only do they know what to do, they feel like you have control over the situation. And to some level, you do. You have a lot more right. control than most and the reason you want three destinations and three routes to each is because the destination you thought you were going to may not be any better and the route to get there may not work so in that point we have a total of nine different options to get there and we have different rally points and we need those rally points because sometimes when the shit's going on there are police and maybe national guards saying you can't stay here yes So if you are supposed to meet somebody at your first rally point on that route and they tell you you have to leave, you may have to leave. Yeah. And we've gone as far as to recommend people do things like have something you can throw on the side of the road. That basically, if you can't communicate because of whatever reason, when that person gets there and they see that you left that dead drop, they know you were already there and they know to proceed to the next place that you were forced to move. Because maybe whoever forced you to move is gone. Right. So this is really a lot of forethought. This is bank accounts. Access information, I recommend people do some form of simple encryption with that in case somebody got their hands on it. It won't work with the NSA, but your average idiot criminal is not going to be able to crack it. You know, maybe you add a two to every number. Yeah. So Like that, right? Right. Um, including things like phone numbers for contractors that would do things like clear your driveway uh, because you need that. First person that gets in connection is usually the first person to get service. Uh, hotels that you would stay at. If you have animals, you know, you should know where the pet friendly hotels are. Be like, are you going to bug out to Marriott? I, I might. I might. It's better than a tent in a Walmart parking lot. Mm-hmm. You know, how long am I going to be there? What's the situation? Uh, and people will always say, well, like, when there's a disaster, all the, tour- the hotel rooms are booked. And you can't, well, somebody booked them. It was the people that booked them first that booked them. Mm-hmm. It's not a convention, right? It's all the people that were displaced. So if you're prepared to do these types of things, you're in great shape, and having identical copies in all your vehicles. When you're separated, let's to because in a panic situation, as bad as trying to tell somebody what to do is without being standing next to them and showing them. In a panic situation, it's worse, mm-hmm. right? So I try to t- tell people when it comes to training to train yourself to where you can do the thing, cold in the rain with a with a uh, a, a flashlight in your mouth at three o'clock, and if you mm-hmm. can do it under that level of stress. Then you can do it, and if you can't do it under that level of stress, you have no idea where you'll 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 break off of that. But right. this helps people deal with that separation and getting back together, putting their lives back together. I also do recommend things like a lot of data being held on, like um, a USB stick or something like that. But the the printable
0: copy is is incredibly important. Well, wow, it's so much good stuff there. Um, it's as you were saying that what came up for me was uh, uh, something that I often cite on this show. And I say that optionality is the optimal strategy when you're facing uncertainty. So the way you described three paths, three rallying points, you know, like you need options because you don't know which way the tree proverbial tree is going to fall, right? So um, I thought that was just really well said. Um, And then I guess we're on tenant twelve. Right, which is just personalize your plan, develop it and implement it. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like the Capstone tenant I suppose.
1: yeah it's it the reality is no one is ever going to do everything I did the way that I did it. Uh-huh. And as a teacher, I need to accept that. I can either have an ego and think well they should or I can accept reality. people do things that they see the most benefit in doing. If you look at it for, ex- like it's like diet and exercise. The reason people don't exercise and eat crappy diets is because you can get away with it for a long time. Uh-huh. If you had a good friend and you found out he was like 35 years old and he died and it wasn't from a clot shot or something like that, he legitimately just died and said, well, what happened? Well, he went a week not eating right and not exercising, right? right. He'd be exercising your ass off and yeah. eating right forever. Uh, but since you can get away with it, so people have this own self-interest motivation. So I might be really in the gardening now. If I put it to where you have to have the garden and you're not in the gardening at all, what happens is a person then says, "Well, this whole thing, I don't want to do this." Right. So you you take it's like a Jeet Kune Kundo. You take out of what I teach the things that you're ready to do, mm. and you implement them. And even if you never get to a hundred. If you get to 75, you're in a hell of a lot better shape than being at zero. Right. So you have to customize the plan. Um, My plan won't work for everybody. It can't. Mm -hmm. I do fairly well financially. There are people that can't just go do the things that I've done over the years overnight. They're going to take a lot longer to get there. Uh, There's people that have a lot more money than me. Well, they can just fortify. You know, They can make a few phone calls and get some contractors and fortify everything and be off grid tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so if that works for you, then you do that, but you have to customize it. But what really comes down to is what I call the golden the golden rule of survival, understanding that what you do matters. And I got to this in a, a roundabout way. I started, I thought I should talk to people who deal with death mm. and the people that deal with death and people that didn't plan to die the most where they actually get to deal with the person to me are oncologists you know, cancer mm. doctor, because mm. guy's 40, he, all of a sudden he has terminal cancer. He's not going to die tomorrow. That doctor gets to spend time with that patient. And I asked them, what is the number one reason that a person you didn't think would be a survivor was? And they they all said they were the pain in the ass patient. Hmm. They're the one they said, well, we should use this form of therapy. Why? What happens if we don't? How does get... And it, they said, "If you had two people and one was a pain in the ass, and one just told did everything you told them, but they both took the same uh, program. They actually ended up doing the same thing in the end. The person that knows what they're doing matters is still more likely to survive because of the human nature and our will to survive and our will to fight through things. So if you don't understand that what you do matters, then nothing anybody ever tells you about survival will ever matter. Right. And it's an incredibly powerful thing. I've had more than one person tell me that they were thinking about killing themselves. One was a gentleman with pretty serious PTSD from the military. And he said, he kept hearing me in, in his head say, what you do matters. And it mm. wouldn't let him do it. And it made him think of his kids, hmm. you know, and, and that was very early on in, in doing this. And it made me realize how important it is. Like, that's not something you should have to learn from a podcaster that what you do matters. That's something ideally you should learn for your par- from your parents and your grandparents. But there's so much broken in our world today. That's why we have so much risk in our world today, because so many people are broken. So many systems are broken. And the ones that are broken, you know, they're spinning on kind of their last wheels. Uh uh, You know, for all the talk of what we're going to do wonderfully with agriculture, our existing agricultural system is really at the edge of what it can do. And it's beginning to fail. But you don't have to you don't have to live with that. You have a choice. So what you do matters. That's the most important thing I could ever get anybody to ever understand.
0: I love that. I mean, it's putting the emphasis on human action, which, you know, that's the title to Mises, great canonical work on economics. And it's, that's a whole nother rabbit hole, but yeah, it's all about what we do. It's all about how we act. It's not about your beliefs or what you say. It's just how, what you do in the world that ultimately defines you and defines history. Um, that's man, this has been really great. I appreciate you sharing the 12 tenets. I have to ask you though, how it seems like Bitcoin's a great fit with this. Yeah. Yeah. Like in what ways is Bitcoin a great I guess first of all, is Bitcoin a great fit with that? And if so, how? Um and how how are you integrating Bitcoin into your life and thinking about modern survivalism? You know, There's so many ways
1: that it's a great set, but let's start off with, like, how I even found out about it. About 2012, my listeners started telling me about this Bitcoin thing, you know, and I didn't get it. About 2013, I started to actually buy a little bit, use it, started making uh, Bitcoin for referrals back then. I think, like, a a $10 referral to Coinbase, she made, like, 0.1 Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. That's how (laughs) I'll go with that. And I, I, I got into Bitcoin, and I got it, or at least I thought I got it. I thought I understood it. That's what happens. That Dunning-Kruger curve gets you, you know? Uh-huh. And then you realize, I don't know crap. And I got into shit-coining for a while. And I made a, I'm made, a pretty good analyst, so I made a, made some real money doing it. But I realized, like, it, it was all BS. None of it really made any sense, except Bitcoin is what really made sense. And you, if you're going to have a limited supply and a finite supply, then you can only have one. Uh-huh. And I started learning more about first principles and things like that. Um, and at the beginning it was number go up. Yeah. But what I learned in like, like going through that 2017, 2018, 2019 bear market, freedom go up was way more important. Mm. And there are a lot of ways that it can integrate. Like we talked about alternative energy. I know a guy, uh, you may know of him, Brian Harrington. He works for choice. Yeah. yeah. I know Brian. Yeah. Brian has a solar system on his house. He has an ant miner. It's an older one, but you know oh, it's what he yeah. has. And he can only make so much energy to top the batteries up for the day. And as soon as that happens, his amp miner kicks in and uses the surplus energy until the sun goes down. Yeah. So he's using excess energy because he lives in California. It's not really doesn't make sense. It's it's worth more money running that amp miner than it is selling it back to the grid. Right. The price they pay selling it back to the grid is crap. Right. Uh-huh. It's ten percent of what you pay. Yeah. So that's one way that it can be integrated. I think long-term wealth strategy, we spent a lot of time talking about that today. I, I look at the, the series you did with Michael Saylor, is, it should be required listening by everybody that <laughs> A Thank big you. One really But what he said, it really hit me there, was that the Bitcoin network is the most successful thing humans have ever built. Yeah. If you measure it by money, within a 10-year cycle, like, Something with a 200% annualized return across a decade, you don't ignore that. Right. If you can concern yourself with wealth, I also think it is forever wealth. Mm-hmm. So we sell a t shirt in our gear shop and it's got the Bitcoin B for bring and it says bring back seventh generational thinking. Mm. Right. And okay. it was that series that really got my head going to that place with it. And what made me think about back in my corporate world days. Uh, for a while, I was a regional VP of a company called Fluke Networks, and I had Virginia to Maine and over to Ohio as my territory. So that New York City was in there. And remembering being a young man walking around Manhattan and seeing some of these churches that were just gorgeous, like marble carved mm-hmm. with just this little sculpted... You couldn't build that today. These things were built in the 1800s when gold was money. Mm-hmm. And I see, you know, Bitcoin is the new gold. And I know that a lot of people get triggered about that or whatever I I don't think they understand what people like myself mean when I say Bitcoin is the new gold or it's digital gold it's hard finite money it's the hardest money ever ever made but it's weightless yeah I can send it to Tokyo in one 10 minute block I could transfer a billion dollars worth of wealth or five and no one can prevent that it's programmable money when I when I started seeing what lightning's been doing over the recent years like you know, ant- entrepreneurship, huge part of what we teach. If you're not accepting Bitcoin, I don't know why. Why wouldn't you accept it as a form of payment? You know, it's right. probably the get your hands on it. Um, Adam K- Curry's work with the Value for Value Network and Podcast Index. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, apps like Fountain, and that's the one that really made it easier for the listener to share value with a podcast host. We've been, since August, almost every week, we're in the top 10 on Fountain. Wow. Uh, your support because... People see value what we're doing. And and this is, the reality of this is, though, Robert, the least popular content I have with my audience is Bitcoin content. It's hmm. the thing they're most resistant to. I got a lot of people, I give for Peter Schiff pictures on their wallet. And all, <laughs> you know, it's all prepper <laughs> mindset. You know? It's not backed by anything. To me, what it's backed by is energy and security. Yeah. I know that's that, sad yeah. is that's that. Sad, and I know when I said it to Robert, Robert got it. Robert has it. I can't double spend it. And you can't take it from me. Yeah. So if you understand the value and uncensorable, unstoppable money, that's digital and weightless. I don't really know how to get, through, <laughs> but I just keep, I keep like you know. Every week I get one or two people. I'm on board. I bought my first Bitcoin. I'm like,
0: all right, all right let's, let's keep doing that. Yeah. No oh, man. Wow. That's a hell of a rant. I think you just orange pilled me a little more. Actually. <laughs> um. I. You know. We just have to let number go up do its thing. That's the sure. ultimate top of funnel for Bitcoin. And then people can do the work, right? They can do their own research, do their homework, and come down the rabbit hole and join us, but um, uh, yeah. Because
1: yeah. I did it. But you can't to yeah. not do what you did. Right, I exactly. to it into a
0: maxi overnight. I mean, yeah, you not- learn through the pain, right? You learn through yeah. the pain, and time and pain, I think, is just what, what teaches you well, it's, uh, I don't know if it's just me, or I think there's a lot of people that have to learn the hard way, and uh, I know, yeah, I get that's just the way we're we're wired, I suppose.
1: Yeah, um, but it's math, and it, I I don't know what exactly what will happen, but I know what the trend is. Yeah, and you just allow that to do its work, and it, it is frustrating though as a show host. I'm sure you experience the same thing. There's all this resistance to it. Well, it's sixteen thousand dollars now, but maybe you should buy some. Like, well, because didn't you say when it went down you were gonna, and now it did, and you're not gonna because it went down? And, and it's, 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 it was like when the Elon stuff happened and, and Mike Saylor came out and it went on this huge run and it was like 40, 50,000 bucks. That's what all the people that in my regular life, my IRL life, right? Yeah. How do I buy Bitcoin? How do yeah. I buy yeah. all my referrals were going crazy, referrals to Strike and mm-hmm. referrals to, you know, Swan and all that. I was getting, you know, 10 a day coming in mm-hmm. and, I'm like, it's, 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 it's 2018 all over again. Yeah. It's the same thing. The FOMO kicks in. Everybody wants to buy the accumulation trough happens. That's what I call it. We've been there for like a year now in the, yeah. accumulation. this yeah. is where you go in hard and everybody goes backwards.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's holding a mirror up to human nature and it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing journey, frankly. I've learned yeah. so much about myself and others and i'm just very grateful to be alive at this time in history so and i think there's a lot of overlap again between all you know all the the ethos the ethos of bitcoin and the implications of bitcoin seem to have tremendous overlap with this concept of modern survivalism that it's ultimately you know if i had to put a term to it it's just self-sovereignty right it's just individual sovereignty it's also Um, a quest for truth right so
1: yeah exactly I I get a lot of Bitcoin people into my community. That's easier than turning my people into Bitcoin people. Right, right, I right. right. see so yeah. Once we break out, was to reach into the, the Bitcoin community and say, come over here and learn the rest of this. Yeah. But I think the reason this overlaps here, and if you look, people are like, all the Bitcoin guys are like code bros, carnivores, you know, and, and it's like, you know, and in, 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 in the alternative energy, and like, they're all the same people. Well, I think what actually happens is You find the truth about something that you've been lied to about your entire life. Yeah. And there's a natural outcome of that. And that is, well, what else have I been lied to? Right, right. People that maybe come into kind of the the low-carbohydrate ancestral diet actually make great converts to Bitcoin because they figured out I was lied to about nutrition. But the Bitcoiner figures out, if I was lied to about money, Right, the same people that lied to me about money lied to me about nutrition maybe i shouldn't live yes on a food pyramid that looks like what's on the bag of cattle feed maybe that's not how that's food right eat, yeah
0: right? The, and then the...
1: saying, well if they lied to me about that then maybe they lied to me about the way we produced it yeah so now they're getting into things like regenerative agriculture and like you see these bridges form texas slim and his work with the beef initiative that's huge where he's yeah. teaching ranchers about bitcoin but teaching Bitcoiners about real ranch and real food and, and real quality and shake a rancher's hand. And by the way, these ranchers will take Bitcoin as a form of payment. Right. Like, these are the these are the things we need to be switching people onto. And, like, like my ultimate tool I try to teach people is how to spend Bitcoin without spending their Bitcoin. I like, Strike's the best way to do that right now. You mm. deposit dollars and you send Bitcoin and you never buy Bitcoin. And that way, your stack stays <laughs> growing. Right. And start using more tech like that as well because one of my big frustrations with Bitcoiners is they don't ever want to spend Bitcoin. I get it. But you don't have to spend, your are spend dollars, you could spend those dollars as Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And that starts building this stronger circular economy. Mm-hmm. Because one thing we didn't get into today, Robert, is community. Mm-hmm. And all of this is, is jack squat. If you don't have community around you, right. because the oh. paradigm does not work in the world of right. survivalism, it doesn't work in feeding yourself it doesn't work in defending yourself you've got to know your neighbors you got to know the people you're doing business with and bitcoin just like the second you start doing business with somebody that takes bitcoin you know you're dealing with somebody you have at least some level uh, of common values ality with right yeah and yeah. care about the things you care about and that's who i want to be associating with you know people that have a non-aggression principle as their guiding thing in life and i find it's not everybody in bitcoin but man, it sure drags even status toward at least libertarianism yeah. pretty quick, and if you stick around libertarianism long enough, us anarchists will, hey. will, will pull you the rest of the way. You will complete your training.
0: Yeah, no, the <laughs> the fiat currency pyramid scheme closely mirrors the government food pyramid scheme. No question about that. And uh, it's a bitter realization, but you know, better to know than not. Yeah. Know, and it's uh, seems to have very positive transformations in, in people's lives. I
1: mean, people have been lied about everything and they believe the lies so openly. So we now have a, a world where people think that health insurance is healthcare. Yeah. Healthcare is healthcare. Right. Health insurance is insurance. Car insurance is not a transportation. Right. Homeowners insurance is not a dwelling. Insurance is insurance. The thing is the thing. What's the problem in healthcare? The problem in healthcare is everything's over overpriced. Uh, everything's a racket. And the food is killing us. The food killing... If you fix the diet of Americans, half the healthcare companies would be out of business in 10 years.
0: That's right, yeah. They would. Yeah, it's it's very... And this is what we try to uh, surface or unearth on this show is like the corruption of money seems to be very corrosive and corrupting to almost everything that it touches, and money touches almost everything. So, so everything's corrupt. Um, yeah, it's very hard to, in my opinion, to understate how ubiquitous this really is. Like you, And what do we say? We crystallize all of that and fix the money, fix the world. Yeah. Um, Here's an example of how bad this is. I can't remember the name of the company
1: right now. I covered this about three weeks ago. I started seeing, uh, Dr. Canterbury is a good friend of mine, uh, is on the show quite a bit. He was putting out these recipes that were coming from the American Diabetes Association. And they were things like sweetened pickles. Like, it's stuff with sugar in it. Oh, and beautiful. I'm like, this is this from the diabetes? System. But then there was a the name of this other company that I can't, it just won't come to me right now. But I looked this company up. They make dialysis equipment for kidney failure. And they are the largest, uh, like, uh, inpatient or outpatient uh, dialysis clinic in the country. They have, like, 3,300 clinics where people go in to get, like, you know, dialysis a couple times a week or whatever. Uh-huh. They're the ones providing the recipes. They're right on their website. And they say they care about your kidney health. Now, the only way this company makes money, the only way they make money is if people need dialysis. And the primary reason people need dialysis today is due to type 2 diabetes. And they're telling diabetics flat out to eat sugar and to add sugar into their healthy diabetic meals. Okay, corrupt. that's because money... corrupt. You're right, corrupt money roughs everything that it touches yeah yeah
0: man is um it's all the time preference man it is it and, uh, the ultimate uphill battle and this is why like thank god for bitcoin like what would we do without bitcoin i don't exactly know but um yeah it's very very exciting to be a part of all of this yeah uh, i have kept you long enough good okay. sir um this was awesome Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Um, Jack, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, but that's a lot of letters, so I
1: have a short URL, tspc.co. Tspc.co, and you can find like all the social media I'm on and, and what have you I'm on Twitter, and I have a YouTube channel and all the typical stuff. Everything's there. There's almost 3,300 episodes that we've done uh, over fi- almost 15 years now. We'll turn 15 in June. And if you want to know about something, the search uh, bar is your friend. I think there's like the most recent 800 episodes are on all the, like, uh, you know, Stitcher and all that. It, because if you put too many in, you break it and pre yeah. yeah. <laughs> huh? WordPress pretty hard. Uh, but even the stuff that's aged out past that, you can find, you can listen to it for free on the site. Um, I do have sponsors and stuff like that and some affiliate marketing, but... Most of my revenue comes from a membership program, Uh, so I don't sell product. Uh, I don't sell access. I don't have a paywall to anything. I believe you give away everything and build a strong community, and your community will give you back more than you would have ever asked for. So everything is available for free. Uh, I even have like mini courses on certain things like permaculture and stuff on my YouTube channel. That's all
0: free. Awesome. Jack, thank you so much for doing this. Um, We'll link to all that in the show notes. And this was a great conversation. So thank you again. Thank you for having me on. This was a great uh, discussion. I really enjoyed it, Robert.